not be driven by fear into an age of unreason. Oh my god, guys, listen up. I have an announcement to make. Did you guys know that I'm like the number one Google search last week? It could be the stuff of history, however, one way or the other. Okay, is Jessica Simpson here yet? And to those critics who are so pessimistic about our economy, I say, don't be economic girly man. And you'll never have to pour or measure detergent again. Can we, can we all get along? Terror, horror, death. Film at 11. How many sides does a triangle have? Damn, four. There's no side. One. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Everybody, what's going down, Brain Trust? It is great to be with you again. I was going to say to hear your voice again, but then I would show that I have a very uh, uh, mediocre in, uh, understanding of how podcasts work. Also, why do I, am I unable to speak at the beginning of the podcast so often? My speaking skills improve as it goes. Maybe it takes me a second to warm up. Maybe I should talk to myself for a minute before I get into the meat of the podcast. I was going to say the crux of the podcast, and that sounded... I don't like the way the word crux sounds, but I feel like a podcast shouldn't have meat. That creates a weird visual image that is confusing to everybody. And so, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm a man who's at sorts with, his, with himself at all times, and many times, including now. So we'll see how it all shakes down. I don't know the answers one way or the other. Uh, I do know that we have an amazing episode for you coming at you right now, recorded in Washington, D.C., uh, the capital of this great nation of ours, um, in my hotel room. you hear all the details in a minute. And my guest will be Hillary Rosen, who is such an amazingly accomplished human being. Uh, I was so excited to get her as a guest. She is a well-known DC strategist. I'll read her full bio as I introduce her in a minute in the part I just recorded two days ago in DC with the entire rundown of the week's news. You'll get an incredible summary of the last week on earth. Um, but I, you know, and it, things that include, she's the uh, co-founder of the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, co-founder of Rock the Vote back in the day on MTV, many other things you'll again hear as I introduce her and go through her bio before the podcast formally begins. But I even didn't get to mention during the podcast, she also is the founder of the Huffington Post, Washington, D.C. Bureau, which is pretty amazing. She also is the... um she also was the chief of staff for Senator Dianne Feinstein, and she um, was part of the legal team that held the public relations efforts, the, the PR side of the legal team, behind the successful challenge to the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA, uh, which is an amazing part of her resume that did not come out in the intro because she's done, again, so many damn things. Um, she also... Um, was hired by Planned Parenthood to help manage the 2015 undercover videos controversy when they edited those videos to try to make it seem like Planned Parenthood was uh, basically encouraged. Basically, you, under, you remember that story, but she has been at the forefront of so many of these pivotal issues. She also is the founder of Business Forward, the progressive network of leaders seeking change in Washington, done so many things. She's on the board of several nonprofits, including the Center for American Progress Action Fund, um, Really cool stuff. You'll hear more in a moment. But before the podcast begins, I'm actually recording this intro. I mean, we've already begun. We've only just begun to quote a song. We've only just begun. Why am I the dumbest person alive? I'm not an idiot. 
But I am very dumb. I'll be honest. So I wanted to quickly do Twitter answers before we log, log, launch in, log into the news. I'm in Israel currently. Did I say that already? I'm in Israel. I'm in the Middle East in the heart of it. On Monday, Trump is moving the embassy from Tel Aviv, the American embassy, to Jerusalem. It's a huge controversial move. We've discussed it on the podcast. I'm in favor of it, one of the few Trump moves that I definitely like. Um, but it's controversial, and there's talks there might be violence when this happens. I will still be here in Israel. I'll be heading from the reality Israel reunion that I'm here for right into Midburn, which is Israel's Burning Man event. And so hopefully there is no violence. Um, we will see how it all shakes down. Let's pray for no violence. Uh, even if I weren't here, we'd of course want no violence. Uh, just in general, it's a solid solid way for the planet to go. But again, that's just the background of where I am and what's happening and we're going to do a quick Twitter answers right about now. And then the podcast begins with Hillary Rosen and a thunder round with her as well at the end of it. A brief one. So I checked in with the Brain Trust, the Glebe Squad, the Glebe of Extraordinary Gentlemen, the Glebe Nation, the B-Glebers in all of us, the Friends with Benefits, hashtag Glebe Squad. It is time for Twitter answers. <laughs> Before I tell you all the Twitter answers that are coming at you in moments, I just wanted to remind you that I will be in San Diego at the La Jolla Comedy Store, May 25 through 27, coming up very quickly. And then in July, I will be in Dallas, Texas at Hyenas and in Plano, Texas. You can get tickets to all of it at Glebe.com, as I'm sure you know by now. And be sure and check out my Instagram stories as well. I asked the Brain Trust, what was the best advice your parents ever gave you? Did you take it? How did it work out? At Sonia Gwen, who I got to meet in my DC shows the other day, said to put $100 in my wallet and leave it in there. I did take the advice. It was probably either when I started driving or went away to college. It worked out well. I said, I don't understand. Explain, Sonia. She says to take a Ben Franklin, fold it up, and put it in a separate place in my wallet for, for my other money and just forget about it unless something unexpected came out. I was 16 before you could take out money instantly on an app or ATM for every two feet. Basically an emergency 100 bucks in the wallet. Smart move. I forgot a time before ATMs and apps, but I guess the world did exist before then, and it was a great time. It was a simpler time. Remember phones with cords? Remember you had to you know, get all tangled up, and you had to kind of talk near a phone, your family could hear you? That was always a strange time. Um, Cassie St. Ange at Casey. Casey St. Ange says, My parents never gave me any advice. No joke, I can't think of one piece. But at my wedding, a friend shared the advice her father gave her before she walked down the aisle. There are more than ten ways to say anything. When you can, choose the kindest. I never forgot it. How sweet is that? Um, Patrick Henry Cation says, There are more than ten ways to say anything. When you can, choose the kindest. I'm an idiot, and I believe that was in response to the tweet before. That would be an incredible coincidence if they said it together. Um, because Cassie didn't reply to the heart, so there you go. Michael Donatello said his dad said, don't fuck up. And then he fucked up. So that was a failure. But don't fuck up. Solid, solid advice. Um, Pear Bear, our dear friend at Pear Bear 91. So when I was a child, I recall my father was saying something about it being my own choice as to whether or not I have a good day. Pretty decent piece of advice from my old man, I suppose. It is. One of my favorite quotes always is, happiness is the determination to be happy under all outward circumstances. Another I've always enjoyed is, Bite off more than you can chew and then chew like hell. 
I believe that's Abe Lincoln. My father always gives me a great piece of advice. He says, go to the dance with who brought you there. And that doesn't seem like it's exactly correct. I think it's something like, stay at the dance with who brought you, who brung you. Be, when you're dancing at the dance, dance with the person who you're dancing with already. You get the point is don't change horses in the middle of the race. And don't forget the people that got you where you are. That's the point of it. I don't remember the phrasing. It's always seemed a little strange. Maybe I'm misremembering it. And my mom's classic piece of advice or just bit of wisdom is sometimes you lead life and sometimes life leads you. It's a great one um, because it gives you, reminds you of the flow of life. You have to connect in just the flow of when to control. When you're out of control, don't feel out of control. Just know it's not your time to be in the driver's seat and trust it. When you don't trust it, you can get real messed up sometimes. Reminds me of one time I was whitewater rafting and all of a sudden I was, when we jumped out of the rafts and we were just going down this rapid by ourselves and it got very bumpy and I don't sometimes go underwater great without holding my nose and I didn't. And I... Please forgive that pause if you'd be so kind. I, Like I said, I'm in Israel. We're hosting a rooftop party with some of our reunion friends that are coming and that was a call from someone downstairs. I sent my dear friend Tate to go get her because I want to finish recording this intro before we continue with the podcast. Um, but I was getting underwater in this rapid and I felt like I was going to drown. I started to get scared and I realized, relax, go with the flow. It'll be fine. Keep your head above water if you can. And I got to a smoother part and I was fine. Coughed a bit, but I did not die, which is obvious on account of me talking to you right now. Alyssa at Sunlight Lover says, my folks told me not to get married at 19. I didn't listen. Life's been a lot rougher as a result. Divorce, debt, guilt resulting from a decision made out of youthful pride and stubbornness. If I could do it all over and have the same kids at the end as I do now, I would. Beautiful that you love your kids. I'm sorry that it's been a tough go, but listen, you have something wonderful that came out of it all. And if you can just, you know, refocus on that, it feels good. And you can just, you know, sometimes take it out on your kids. If you get frustrated, make your kids suffer. I feel like that's a solid way to get past a lot of difficult times is just take it out on a younger generation. I'm kidding mostly. You understand that. Um, Kimberly at Hugs and Kiss, at our dear friend Hugs and Kiss 3, says, be a man, be, sorry, be with a man because of what he has in his heart, not his bank account. Yes, I took it. I've never been with a man for his money. He has to have a big heart and be good to me. Love that. At Paul HIC1 has even more practical advice. Don't eat yellow snow. Solid. Very solid point. Um, Aaron Elmore. Esquire, recent guest of our podcast, Republican Strategist, says, don't get a tattoo and don't change your name when you get married. I listen to both. Solid. I think you can go either way on both of those pieces of advice, but I also recommend getting tattoos, and I don't think changing your name is bad. Then again, I'm the man in the situation. I wouldn't have to do that, so I shouldn't be judging. Um, Will Colford at W. Colfo says, never burn your bridges, son. Six years later, after quitting in a spectacular fashion, Dad, I thought you said never to burn your bridges. His dad replies, sometimes you got to burn your bridges, son. Burn them good. <laughs> I love that. That's important to remember, too. Even in the face of any good advice, oftentimes there's good advice on the opposite side of that puppy. Um, at Dry Fit Socks, at Tovilina says, never trust the government, her dad said repeatedly. Also, never trust anything that's done for your own good. Mac may have just meant seatbelt laws. But my siblings and I grew to be Monday morning anarchists. You may have over-interpreted uh, that advice, but sure. At Ovali, under Brubv, says, In marriage, give 80% and expect 20% back. 
Separate beds a plus. LOL. Oh my God. Uh, not a great argument for marriage right there, but what can you do? Um, we also have a great one here that I have always thought is genius is by, from Pizza Hut. Find something you enjoy doing that no one else wants to do and you will always have a job. It's hard to find, but if you can find it, my God, that's a great idea. Mario Matias at Dipper Giver says, My dad once told me never buy really cheap toilet paper. It's good advice. My parents buy cheap toilet paper. They believe the plumbing in their house is weak. They go one ply, and I don't enjoy going to the bathroom of their house. Not that I enjoy it anywhere in life. And this whole part of the podcast is TMI, and for this I truly apologize from the bottom, not my bottom, but the bottom of my heart. And so that's good. But again, uh, keep in mind, Sometimes advice is not to be taken, as Charity reminds us, Boston underscore in, underscore save. They did not actually give me the advice as much as I did the exact opposite of what they did, and it worked out fantastic for me. I am way happier than they are in life. Well, there you go. As long as you find a way to get your life where you want it to be, it doesn't really matter the approach, I suppose. Um, Ramsey Badawi, who was a guest coming up in the We the People that I recorded Recently, covering, again, a bipartisan debate of all the issues. He was really great on the episode, at Ramsbad on Twitter. Um, he says, you can't be depressed if you don't believe in happiness. <laughs> He's a comedian, just for the record. Para el recuerdo. I don't know if recuerdo actually is record, but it sounds like it. My Spanish is sometimes great, sometimes incredibly poor and choppy. Um, big fan of your work, at 34 Ironhead, says, Pops gave me... Two quality bits. One, never get in a fight to lose. And two, measure twice, cut once. Both have served me well. Measure twice, cut once, always a great piece of advice. Make sure you don't be hasty and jump in and then fuck something up you can't undo. And similar is the exact same point of that fight. You shouldn't fight, but if you get in, be ready to win. I have not taken that advice. I get into fights all the time because I stand up for what's right. And I always defend people, but I don't want to punch somebody in the face. And you can't do both. So I always jump into fights and then just get punched a whole bunch of times in the head and face. And it never feels great. And I don't win fights very often. Recently, I did have two fights that I won pretty quickly because I just took somebody down very quick, and then we were separated, so I got lucky as well. But, um, you know, uh, I'm not the greatest to give advice. Maybe you want to go to a Chuck Norris or... or um, He's the only fighter, really, that I can think of at the current living, strong fighter. And he also has some political views I don't agree with, so ignore it. But for me, he's a good fighting expert, though, for sure. Um... And the last one I will share with you is Eric, the world's worst deadbeat dad. Eric Does Voices says the advice he got was, you can't get her more pregnant. I I don't even know what it means. I guess it means that once she's pregnant, then you don't have to worry about getting her pregnant a second time. It's nonsensical advice. Maybe you can explain it to me. Feel free to tweet at me at Ben Glebe. And uh, without further ado, it is time for a much more intelligent part of this conversation because my talking will be counterbalanced upward in Hello, everybody. Wonderful Another last Hillary week on Rosen. Earth special episode brought podcast. you from Washington, from Washington D.C., D.C., our nation's capital. If you don't know that, Begins listen now. to a different podcast because that's like the basic, basic element. Um, we are currently in my hotel room slash conference room. It's kind of a, there's a conference table <laughs> and it makes it professional. I felt creepy every, even having a guest in my hotel room. Yeah. But I had no choice. The conference rooms of the hotel were taken, and so I did my best. And I, the moment I went downstairs to greet my guest, she says to me, all right, Harvey, and it's a fair statement. Yeah. Because yeah. it's creepy. Creepy, super creepy. Yep. 
But that said, you were kind enough to come upstairs. I tried to make the vibe as professional as possible. Gave you yep. water that's never been yep. opened. Um, and I said, what did I say? You said. I'm an old lesbian. You're getting nothing from me. <laughs> true. That's what I said. Very true. Yeah. Which is, I like that you came up front about it. Yeah. Very kind of you. Mm-hmm. Um, but old lesbian, I, I, I'll leave, I'll leave the old judgment. I disagree with it. You look wonderful. Uh, lesbian, I assume that's true. I'm going to take your word for that. But what. People, Ask my fiance. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Okay. Good. Well, at least that hopefully is an important part, I guess, to make it work is that you are of the same orientation. It makes relationships easier. Much easier. Definitely. Um, but our listeners may not know some of the amazing things you've accomplished. So what I'd like to do before we launch into stories from the last week on Earth is to go through your bio and then just kind of pause on the different things in the bio that I think are worthy of a quick chat. And we'll do that. So my guess is Hillary Rosen. A well-known Washington, D.C. strategist who navigates the intersection of communications, media, and politics. Currently an on-air CNN political analyst and partner at SKD Knickerbocker, the 2016 Holmes Report. Don't know what that is, but it sounds official. Public Affairs Agency of the Year. (laughs) We just won it again this week. Really? We're now the 2018 Holmes Agency. Is that true? Public Affairs Agency. That's amazing. Well, congrats to the homeless people for making great choices. (laughs) They make good choices. They do. She is a well-known advocate for women's issues, LGBT issues, and progressive causes. LGBT issues not just for older LGBT people, but for all ages. Very kind of you. She is a founding co-chair of the Time is Up Legal Defense Fund, the organization created in January of this year by women in the entertainment industry to help survivors of sexual harassment in the workplace. And Hillary's ability to lead issue campaigns in Washington is profiled in the book Pennsylvania Avenue, Profiles and Backroom Power by the Wall Street Journal and New York Times reporters Gerald Sebsibes, who knows, and John Harwood. Throughout her career, Hillary has regularly been featured on power lists in a variety of sectors, including the New York Post, Ladies Who Launch Entertainment Trends, Entertainment Weekly's annual power list, the Hollywood Reporter's Power 50 Women, and the Washington Post's Power 20. I'd like to start by asking, do you think you're better than me? No. That was a pause there. No, no, I was trying to figure out what you wanted me to say because I'm a pleaser. <laughs> That's nice of you. You just said you weren't a pleaser and I shouldn't expect anything. That yeah, was... not a sexual pleaser. Oh, got it. Yeah, like it's in different. some life. Yeah, yeah. It is life. very different. So you start... Much of my job is to help other people look good. Yeah, that is true. So yeah. I guess that's what a communications person does. Yeah. And a strategist. So being a strategist and somebody who's working in media communication and how messed up is our media landscape right now? You know, it's it's interesting. I was with Ronan Farrow um, day before yesterday, and uh, who's an old friend of mine, name drop. And he's thirty; he, couldn't be that old a friend. It's true. I've I've known him since he's like I don't know sixteen when he was doing activism in Darfur and he's a very going serious, on TV. Very good looking man. With he's a very serious, piercing blue eyes. Is good looking man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> We'll leave the piercing blue eyes comment aside. Well, it's incredible. He's like, he like looks too good to be a reporter, in my opinion. He's oh, okay. Like, I thought that was a paternity comment. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> no, I was not making any Woody Allen jokes. Um, anyway, uh, most importantly, he actually is a serious journalist. And he made the comment, which I totally agree with, that in this time of complete overwhelming attacks on the media, attempts by everybody to undermine the media. Actually, there's better journalism happening across this country than ever before. And I think that's really true. And it's some, it's comforting for people like me. We need it more than ever, of course, at this time, but is it 
harder? Did you guys discuss? Is it even though there might be better journalism happening, is it more difficult for it to break through this immense noise? Well, you know, the audiences are more are more bifurcated for journalism, mm-hmm. and so you know, you have people who pay attention to the New York Times and the Washington Post and um, the uh, you know Bloomberg News and the AP and sort of what I'll call kind of straight just the facts and then obviously their opinion pages. And then you have people who are never going to listen to anything that those organizations or CNN has to tell you about the facts. Um, so I, but I think, you know, what we know is that the majority of this country actually do seek out unbiased news sources for their information. And then, you know, 30% of the country thinks that Everything that Breitbart and Fox News and the Drudge Report tell them is true. Mm -hmm. What can be done to combat it? Because one of the main goals I've always had with this podcast is to try to reach an audience that typically doesn't care about the news or maybe in the – not to say my listeners don't, but some percentage of my listeners in the past hadn't been interested in the news because it seemed so dry and so, you know, I don't know, kind of hoity-toity in the way it was presented. Yeah. And so – um. What what can be done in the general media landscape to get to that thirty percent to try to break through and and make facts important again? You know, it's it's a serious question, right? Um, and my view is that there that people will listen to trusted sources. So you've become a trusted source for your listeners, mm-hmm. and as much as you've got an edge or a, a, a sarcastic taint on on the news of the day, the facts that you present is something that people are going to believe or they're not going to believe. People who care about you and and respect you are going to believe you. When I I was a founder of Rock the Vote uh, many years ago and worked with MTV to help organize Rock the Vote and promote it and, and engage young voters in a way that they hadn't been engaged before in uh, the 90s. And what we found was that MTV News was actually the principal source of news for something like 80% of 18 to 30-year-olds, 16 to 30-year-olds. And we were kind of overwhelmed, and my friends running MTV were sort of overwhelmed with the responsibility, the awesome responsibility of bringing actual news to this audience. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't really matter if you have sort of three minutes – Every few hours to bring news to them, like MTV was focused mm-hmm. on, or whether you are doing, you know, hour long podcasts. Doesn't that, matter if your delivery mechanism is Wolf Blitzer or Kurt Loader. What matters is, um, whether your audience trusts you, and that's your responsibility for anyone. So it's still a challenge. I don't think anybody's quite figured out how to crack the code into holding our news to account because Obviously, until I guess this year, Fox News, their slogan was fair and balanced. And if you present yourself as being that trusted source and then you you know, take advantage of that, it's scary. I think maybe a little bit of hope. Neil Cavuto had a rant yesterday. I just retweeted it where he for four minutes was calling out a lot of Trump's lies. It was impressive. And, you know, Shep Smith on, on yeah, Fox does his own does his own thing, too. Look, we're in an era of personal responsibility like Everybody with a microphone has to look into their own conscience and decide whether they are really leading their audience with facts and with thoughtful information or whether they are leading them to, you know, Armageddon. A lot to, of the, people to the last week on Earth. That's right. A lot of people <laughs> don't care, though. 
A lot of people just want that mic and want to take it to the nth degree of the power it can bring them and don't care about the facts. It's just so hard because, like you say, we're so bifurcated in our media consumption that it's just very hard to talk to the other side sometimes. I really keep keep going back to the solution that I think conversations with the other side of our views is the most important way because it's the only way to kind of hold facts to account when you're having a conversation face-to-face. I totally agree. And for all of the kind of attacks on Washington and how nothing gets done here, which is often true these days, um, you know, one of the things that I think is kind of a hallmark of successful sort of interaction is that, like, I call it the green room relationship. I, I spend more time probably talking to Republicans about politics than I do talking to Democrats or mm-hmm. liberals because I learn more when I talk to Republicans, mm-hmm. and totally. and it's really important. I ran into Dennis Prager at an airport one time leaving the uh, Republican convention I was covering for NPR, and he was reading a book on liberal thought. And I said to him, interesting you're reading that. He goes, well, I already know my side. Yeah. And it is important to listen to their side. But that's yet another problem with Fox News of the world. I, was, I recently went on Fox News with my buddy Tommy Lahren. And she got me on there to go and talk, and we got to debate some of her positions on on the next revolution with Steve Hilton. But I asked her to do my podcast, and I asked another friend recently to do my podcast who's on Fox. And they both say it's the only network that says this. They have to get permission from the network to do any outside press, and they both got turned down. You were for CNN. You came here um, without having to ask anybody. I didn't ask. Right. Sometimes I'm supposed to ask. Really? Yeah, yeah but Whatever. Usually, well, they want you to ask if you're going to get paid. So oh, okay. since you're not paying me luckily anything, luckily for yeah, you, luckily for me, I'm not getting paid today. Um, but don't you think that's a major problem if these people are supposed to be speaking from the news? Like, why would CNN even care? Like, why why would you have to ask to go and speak your opinions and speak your truth on to other sources? Well, despite what many people say, CNN actually cares about the credibility of both its journalists and its on air contributors. I'm I'm not a journalist; they don't sell me as a journalist. So I'm allowed to have opinions mm-hmm. both on CNN's air and other places, mm-hmm. um, but they are careful about that with their with their um, contributors and journalists. So you think that's okay? Then a place like Fox News does as well. And you don't I don't think get- it's okay to prevent right. um, uh, your folks from getting to other places and other outlets, um, but I do think it's okay to to sort of screen it and have some standards. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so you were one of the founders of, of Rock the Vote. I remember that having a big impact on me too. And you guys, you guys organized also that, that town hall that Bill Clinton did when he famously said he didn't inhale and all of that. That was part of Rock yeah. the Vote, wasn't yeah. it? Um, most people also remember that from the time where it was sort of, um, boxers or boxers briefs. Boxers or briefs, yes. <laughs> this is true. Um, really big important questions were. Yes, were it was, which many, I'm sure you don't know this because it was never, it is on YouTube. Years later when Hillary was running for president, I was covering the campaigns for a pilot I was shooting and I got moments with Hillary and Obama and McCain. And I went up to Hillary and I said, um, this was in the last throes of her campaign in 08. And I was one on one with her and I said, uh, I said, Senator Clinton, this question helped your husband a lot when in his campaign, we've learned so much about you, but behind the pantsuit, boxers or briefs. <laughs> And she did not quite know how to handle that question. She kind of walked away. And I'm like, boxers are brief. She just gave me a thumbs up. She didn't laugh. She she kind of smiled and got her eyes bugged out a little bit. And she walked away. And I said, my guess is it's another pantsuit. Yeah. I think it's pantsuits all the way yeah. down with her. Maybe so. Um, But, you know, 
Um, is this my moment where I should interject at how the behind the scenes Hillary is really so much more fun than the media Please, ever gets to yeah. see? Because that's what I hear. It's true. Because I was just interviewing, and I think this episode will be released next week. Because I banked a couple of us on going to Israel, but I have an episode coming for you guys with the vice president of communications from Emily's List, a great organization that helps to get uh, democratic female candidates to run for public office. And she said that one of the things that that they encourage all their candidates to do is to be themselves as much as they can. And that maybe one of Hillary's problems that took her a long time in this last campaign to be herself. And that's after she already ran eight years earlier. Yeah. So is she that much different? And why do you think she is so afraid to be that person in? Well, Christina Reynolds, situations? who you interviewed, obviously had uh, probably some insight on that. But look, there's a, a book out this month called um, Chasing Hillary. Uh, by a rep- New York Times reporter named Amy Chozik, which is a is a good book, and I encourage people to read it, mostly because of what it says about the life of a reporter, and less about what it says about Hillary Clinton, uh, who she actually doesn't know that well. Um, but it's a good kind of on the road book. But what I what I find interesting is that a lot of people in talking about the book. Um, have sympathy for sort of the long-suffering reporter who can't get close enough to Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. What it doesn't have much insight to is what it's like to actually be chased. Mm -hmm. That, you know, what Hillary Clinton has gone through for the last 30 years, having reporters dissect every pore and every crevice and every emotional state she's ever had. In a way that's not done for male candidates. And how exhausting it is. Mm. And so this kind of constant desire for her to be herself with reporters, I find just, you know, get over it, guys. But it just forces you to not fully be able to let your guard down because you know that every – How can she? Right. Every time you you misphrase half a sentence, it's Really, there's nothing safe about being exposed. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fair point. Why don't I move your phone away from the recorders because sometimes it messes up the thing. Oh, no worries. Um, So this is the the behind-the-scenes nuggets you guys just rarely get with discussion in the regular media, but this is an unedited, unvarnished vibe. Um, so, um, that reminds me of one other thing. I won't go back to my planned, planned topics here, but so you talk about being yourself. And there's something that I don't understand. I think is very disillusioning to people. To me, it is for sure about once you're even in office about how much you kind of can't be yourself. I read an interesting, uh, quotation from John McCain in a Daily Beast article. Uh, John McCain, of course, an, an amazing senator, an American hero, and the father of friend of the podcast, Megan McCain, my friend. Um, as he's battling stage four cancer, uh, stage four brain cancer, in his new book, he writes, quote, I'm freer than colleagues who will face the voters again. I can speak my mind without fearing the consequences much, and I can vote my conscience without worry. I don't think I'm free to disregard my constituents' wishes. Far from it. I don't feel excused from keeping pledges I made, nor do I wish to harm my party's prospects. But I do feel a pressing responsibility to give Americans my best judgment. And my question is, my problem is, why does it take brain cancer at the very end of your career when you're not facing another election to do that? Why is ev- why must everybody be so concerned with re-election that it creates such a disingenuousness in your overall ab- your overall sense of self and your ability to 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 be who you want, who you are in your heart when you're serving people. I guess just why it's a six year term. Isn't that almost enough time to just have six years in your first term, honestly and unvarnished and true and fight for the things you believe in. And if you don't get reelected, so be it instead of having to play a game from day one. 
Well, you know, the system demands it. And, and, um, because politics is really, politicians have two lives. They have the life of getting elected and then they have the life of making policy. And those two are in conflict because getting elected is a popularity contest, pure and simple. And making policy is complicated and messy and ugly and requires compromise and requires a sort of a, you know, a, a, a trust in colleagues around issues that, um, does not translate easily to a 30 second campaign commercial. But, and, and I don't, I don't, I'm not excusing that by, by, by making this analogy, but it, it isn't that different from other places in life where, you know, a CEO of a company has to deal with shareholders and what's going to work for the stock price on a quarterly mm-hmm. basis versus what might be in the long-term health of the company or investing in, you know, new people or new equipment or new growth that's going to hurt their short-term results. So things like that happen all the time in life, the little compromises that we make. My mother's going to like me better if I make her feel good, you know, this week, but really my, my, you know, just brown nosing somebody to get, a, <laughs> you know, to get my allowance raised. Sure. But I mean, maybe with your mother, it's a problem too, but in companies, I understand it because the purpose of the company is to deliver their service and to make profit. But it feels like in the, the one area it is supposed to not be that is in government where your yep. purpose is supposed to be to fight for, for what's people. good and just yep. for the people. And that's the per the purpose of government is to serve people, but the but the the way that our government is structured, the democracy it is, requires this kind of need to the popular will. And and that is not what our our elections are, are geared towards now. How much do parties hurt it? Because I'm, I'm, I hate the two-party system. I don't understand why we even have political parties. Why must that organizing feature and rallying feature of our democracy supersede just the obvious independence I think would be so much healthier for democracies to say, just be you and vote issue by issue and maybe make, make sure your constituents are happy, but don't have to be part of a platform and feel like you're tr- betraying your party if you go. It doesn't necessarily, I think it doesn't change it much if you take the parties out of it. Look at California right now where they have, um, these kind of nonpartisan primaries, winner take all primaries. Mm-hmm. So that in multiple races, federal races, you have the top two people running for office could be two Democrats. The top two people could be two Republicans. People act exactly the same way. Um, I, I, I'm not sure that the parties per se affect it, but this is a fairly divided country. And so there is a very much a, um, a fear that politicians have about, um, about crossing lines. I think that there's less, I think there are fewer people who don't want to do the right thing than there are fewer people who agree on things. This is a, a fairly divided world. And if you go into pockets across the country, take Donald Trump, right? No, they don't really like what he, they don't like his boorish behavior. They don't like that he lies all the time. They don't like that, you know, he's uh, a cheater on his wife. They don't like his sexual harassing. But, you know, there is still a significant group of people in this country who think they like his policies, who mm. think they like his disrupting of politics. Like his approval ratings are holding for a reason. 
Right. This is still a pretty divided country on those issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I think also, though, I think a large reason for that is the exact reason of the mistrust of the authenticity of politicians that we just spoke about. I think that's why Trump's in office is because people think despite all of these many pretty significant terrible flaws of his, they desperately wanted somebody who would do it differently and would speak their tr- their version of the truth and would just call it out and call out the flaws in our government because every polished politician who has been in office for so long says these great, amazing things and has oratory that soars and then doesn't do the things that they say. I think people are 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 so frustrated they say we'll take anything in case it's different, in case it's better. Yeah. I um I worked in the music business for for many years and I was there during the the rise of hip hop and there was a lot of criticism of hip hop at the time that we were contributing to like a crassness of the culture that we were contributing to poisoning young people's minds you know as soon as hip hop moved into the white suburbs that's when everybody freaked out about it um as long as it had stayed in the hood for a while it was okay mm-hmm. but um we had this constant internal debate among uh those of us in the music community among artists and and writers and others with um the the disapproving politicians who were attacking hip hop which was does the music reflect the street or does the street reflect the music mm-hmm. and i think we're finding that again in our politics does this crassness does this division does this hate reflect the what's happening out there in the country or is it creating what's happening out there in the country and you know i i think the answer is somewhat in between that they are feeding off each other in a very significant way so then how do you correct it? You, it's hard, probably harder to correct the culture as a whole than it is to try to get a smaller group to behave themselves or to act differently. Might be easier to rein in a Donald Trump or rein in certain aspects of the lyrics of rap music than it is to change the entire culture and hope that infiltrates up. Right, but just like with politicians, you—I mean, you can't—you can't rein in lyrics of rap music. You can't change creative people's. Thinking, right. you can't you can't um, uh, censor their emotions. Similarly, for politics, you you can't um, take on a system with words. You have to take on a system with change. Mm-hmm. And so, politicians have to deal with underlying causes if they want things to change. They're going to have to deal with the disparity of CEO income to the lowest on the assembly line. Right. They have to deal with, you know. President Trump lying about those carrier air conditioning jobs not moving to Mexico. Guess what they did? They did, right? Like they're going to have to. There's going to have to be some systemic awakening here. So I'm wrong on that. So you do have to go from the bottom up. I, I think you're right. I was just speculating, um, but you're right. I think you do have to change the culture because that is true. You can't art. I think. I think probably it tips more towards the art reflects the culture more than the, the reverse of it. Sure, and I think. Our politics reflects the frustration that people mm-hmm. have in their daily lives. Sure. And just to go back to your bio, like I said I would, um, not only did you work in the music industry, you were the former chairman and CEO of the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, the leading trade association of America's record companies from 87 to 2003. And you were there during the the difficult time that I think the music industry is, industry is still struggling with, but the, the move to – 
digitalization of digitizing of everything and it no longer being physical records and physical copies and something that has hurt the music industry in a huge way. The profits disappeared from that. Now it's all Spotify and streaming. How do you think the music industry has navigated it since you left? Do you think that they're finally coming around or are the royalties coming up to a place where it's sustainable again to have an artistic career in music? Well, I think they navigated it badly. Um, and I think that it is getting better, but it is also getting on some level, um, both sort of more elite and more street. And so successful artists can have big touring careers. They can sell merchandise. They can make money from, uh, significant streaming and up and coming artist. Uh, there are, there are more outlets to get heard if people believe in them. You know, it's not just radio anymore. It used to only be radio. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, streaming and, um, provides and, and, and online provides another outlet for, for getting heard. What I find is actually disappearing is kind of the middle artist, the, mm-hmm. um, the artist that sort of have a significant fan base, but nowhere to go because they can't sell out big stadium shows. There aren't as many mid-sized venues and they're not getting the kind of airplay and streaming play that they, they might've once gotten. And, you know, whether those are, 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 are bands or, um, uh, uh, singers, it, it, it's just harder and harder. So, I think that the industry has changed. I think artists are more on their own than they ever were. The system of support from touring to record companies to um, uh, promotion is um, uh, doesn't exist the way it used to. And artists think- have to prove themselves now for any one of those outlets to really invest money into them. And I think because, because again, of that disappearing middle, which I think mirrors the country and disappearing middle class as well. <laughs> it may be a fair point. But in art, I think it also creates more of that coarseness because it, it makes this mandate where you have to make waves to get to that top. So it makes people have to be more extreme and in some ways less true to who they would be. And they have to, they're trying to go viral. They're trying to create these insane experiences or say insane things that take you to that next level. I think it's scary, but again, what are you going to do if, if industries shift? Well, in, in the irony, it's similar to journalism. There's probably more music being made than there ever has been before, just mm-hmm. because of the availability of tools mm-hmm. and True. technology uh, is so much more affordable now for an artist. You don't have to rent a, you know, a thousand dollar an hour studio anymore. And so, and there's so much more horrible music being made, too, there's unfortunately. More horrible music. Oh my God, being everybody's made. got an album. And my friends are like, listen to my new EDM track, and I'd rather shoot myself in the face. Yeah. EDM's just gone off the deep end. Yeah, it's it? not the greatest. But now, so that's an interesting. So there, there are so many stories I want to get to, um, but it's such an interesting conversation and sparking so many different thoughts. So, so one is how do you, I guess, reconcile in your head the, to what degree is hip hop responsible for the coarsening of our culture when it comes to the way women are treated in our society. And, you know, you're on sort of both sides of, of, of that, at least historically with being there for the rise of hip hop and rap. And then also you started the times of legal defense fund and, you know, with stories this week, like um, Charlie Rose was working on a documentary about repenting for what, what happened with, with his 
sexual assault accusations, sexual harassment accusations, and he's going to be interviewing other people for that, such as Louis C.K. and other people. And um, people keep asking, when is hip-hop going to have that reckoning as well? Because that's certainly an industry where there's been a lot of it, and it's been so far unscathed by movement that you'd think would have gone there at first. So um, I think, uh, as as you would expect, I have a sort of um, um, a bit of a, a balanced view on this. I I don't think hip hop is responsible for the coarsening of a culture that degrades and defames women. I think that happened long before hip hop started. I think hip hop. Yeah, look at Mad Men. I guess that was I think hip hop exaggerated and promoted the um, messaging around that mm-hmm. um, as a as a sort of an artistic form, but it certainly didn't create it. I think you know a, a music video that has um, uh, you know, dancing girls is no less offensive to many of us than the history of cheerleaders being abused by football players. That it, it, it is part and parcel of the same male dominated patriarchal, um, female oppressive culture. So I, I think that what we have seen though is that when there have been instances in music over the last couple of years, hip hop has been slower to respond to instances of real abuse versus um, artistic and and um, expression. Right. So R. Kelly's R. Kelly is, is the perfect example this week. The fact that the hip-hop community has not come out and denounced R. Kelly the way that the movie community has come out and denounced Harvey Weinstein it is a source of shame to me. I feel badly that that has happened, that mm-hmm. that, that, that has not happened. And I feel like... Uh, artists and record companies and um, promoters and the like have to be more aggressive about cleaning their own houses than than they have been. And I think we have seen more of a reckoning in the movie industry. We've seen more of a reckoning in the media business. Um, so hip-hop is a place where we have not seen that. In the music industry in general, frankly, not hip-hop alone. I, I don't think this is a hip-hop problem alone. It's across the board in, in music. But honestly, as part of the Time's Up Legal Defense Fund, we are seeing this reckoning needing to occur and starting to occur at every place from you know the military to Walmart to the diners on the corner to the factories in the middle, and that has – uh, unleashed something really, really important. It particularly affects low-wage worker women the way um, more than it has affected women in the movie business and, sure. and women in music. Um, and so, and, and restaurants is a huge problem. Restaurants are a huge problem. Service industry general, housekeepers and hotels. Mm-hmm. Um, that the level of abuse. Dominique Strauss Kahn, anybody? The level of abuse that has been uncovered over the last couple of years is, um, I would say it's shocking to me. I, well, it, it's been shocking to me, but it, 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 it's been pervasive for years and years and years. And, you know, it's high time. Time's up. So, yeah. So, so what do you think is the outcome? What, what do you think? How long will it take? And what do you think? Time's up and Me Too will be able to achieve. And it already is achieving, it seems to me, that it's already achieving um, something that's pretty new for men having to deal with is just having to really think about every action and about the way that you 
treat women the way that you're presenting situations. I mean, I wouldn't have thought twice about having a podcast in my hotel room before the right. last few months. And now I literally, I was at the front desk. I'm like, I have a female guest coming to my hotel. I don't want to have to do it in my room. Can we possibly do it in the conference room? Can I use a back office here? Anything. So I think that's a very good change just to make men pause and think. Yeah. But what do you think the lasting effect will be? Like, where's a happy place it can land? Well, it's interesting. I think there is, there's a bit of a generational divide on this. And we've been looking at some research lately on this subject. Um, two things are happening. One, younger women are demanding more respect than, frankly, women of my generation did. Mm-hmm. Things that I looked away from, young women today are not looking away from. They're not accepting. They are not taking it. And so in, in some respects, like many things, hopefully we're going to, we're going to grow our way ultimately out of this problem. With, so a, for each with hip- a more enlightened younger generation. Right. So for each each problem with hip-hop lyrics, there's also Beyonce and Cardi B that are putting Yeah, and for and each, saying, you know, R. Kelly now, there's a Talib Kweli. You know, there's a right. young hip-hop well, artist who, less, who, yes. who does um, something right and, and respects women the right way. And so I think we – so so that's one trend that I think is, is um, good. The other trend, frankly, is – that this public pressure and the sunlight on these issues has been comforting. Now, it's not all good, as we've seen lately with, you know, a situation with Tom Brokaw where people, yeah, you know, there was, a, there was a bit of a backlash against the woman who spoke her truth. But for the most part, women are being supported in ways they had not been supported before. And that is a trend that I think will continue and has to continue. I agree, and I think that is very beautiful, and that is the hope of the movement. Um, but I, I do, as as a man, I, I want to ask the question on that side, on the Tom Brokaw side of things. And to what you said is that younger women are, are not standing for things that women of a past generation did. To what degree is it fair to say that that there is some responsibility there then, not that the women were to blame for the actions in the past, but because they accepted certain behaviors, it became the cultural norm and societies evolve and people evolve. And, you know, we've come a long way from being cavemen and the way women were treated back then, I'm sure was quite a lot worse. And so not to ever excuse bad behavior, but just to me, it, it seems like it's counterproductive to the movement to try to take down Tom Broca, this seemingly very gentlemanly nice person who all of a sudden it comes out there's some someone saying 50 years ago he tried to kiss me and somebody else says 30 years ago he put my hands on his chest and that seems to me like is that really a problem during an era when the norms were different before this movement when women did allow a different kind of behavior for men and that was the norm to what degree does that turn men against the movement because it says like, look, I'm all for new norms. I'm all for new standards of behavior. And if women are putting their foot down on a different line, we won't cross that new line. But to try to take people down from behavior from so long ago or even from the recent past that was more acceptable and it wasn't seen as a bad thing when men are, are still tasked with being the initiators of sexual activity in our society, where does that, where is there any leeway for that? So here's the thing that you have to realize when people come to the table with stories that some think are too old to be relevant. Or too mild, honestly. The, the reason why it is important is because 
it might have been the norm in society, but it still had a traumatizing effect on the individual woman who went through that. And maybe her life was never the same. Maybe she never approached her job the same way. Maybe she didn't trust men or her bosses the same way. Maybe organizations didn't address systemic harassment the way they should have. And so the reason why it is relevant to bring up old hurts is because there's just not enough awareness that the behavior has been con- has has taken place for many 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 years but it is was just as detrimental then as it is today and so we need older men we we need people who have credibility in the community we need people who dismissed it years ago to have an awakening to have a reckoning and say you know what actually I did actually have bad behavior for many years and that wasn't okay. And it's not okay now, but it really wasn't okay then either. The fact that a lot of people did it didn't excuse the fact that I did it. Sure. And but so, you're also and that's, that's really, really important. That reckoning is so critical for healing for any individual who feels like they are a survivor of, of harassment or abuse. For sure, but you also still did say that part of what's changing is that women aren't standing for what they stood for in the past. So all I'm saying is, isn't there? Is but there- just because they didn't go public with it in the past doesn't mean that it didn't have the same impact on them. And that's the point I'm making. Sure. And so that impact has to be accounted for. Sure, but do you think that? I guess, but is there? That I agree with, and I think it would be better in some of these cases, even though understandably if you receive an, a, an, an, an accusation, even Tom Brokaw is saying, I never made a romantic overture. seems to me probably he did. Probably – I think he probably did try to kiss the person in the hallway and he's afraid to admit that. But it, and it probably would, would be better for both sides if he said, you know what? I'm really sorry. I tried to kiss her once 30 years ago in a hallway. I shouldn't have done that because I was her boss. Sorry, I just need to correct your facts sure, here sure. On, on the Tom Brokaw sure. thing, which I, I know some about. Um, uh, his, his accuser did not talk about a kiss in the hallway. It was an after hours come to my hotel room and meet with me and uh, an aggressive pass in a hotel room. In the room. By a – person who was the most important person at the network where right, you worked. Right, right. That's a power play. That's not a casual pass. And I think that that those instances where people are so willing to kind of dismiss, well, there wasn't a Harvey Weinstein rape. Like everything doesn't have to be a rape to be a right. power play that affects a survivor in many significant ways. And I think that that's really what this Me Too movement is a, is is about is women sharing their stories of shame and diminishment and power plays that they were party to that they shouldn't have been that they shouldn't have been subjected to and what times up is trying to do as an organization and as a movement is to say there are other ways to behave equality in the workplace whether it's pay equity whether it's senior leadership roles for women whether it's a legal reckoning through the legal defense fund that that there there are multiple ways 
to reconcile what has happened with where we want to be in the future. So would you say then that it's not – obviously not all things are equal and so nobody's saying what Tom Brokaw did is the same as what Harvey Weinstein did. But you're saying that both should be able to be exposed to the sunlight and help advance both the conversation. Matter. Both, both matter. Both matter. Sure. Because honestly – and again, I don't – there are more Tom Brokaws in the world than there are Harvey Weinsteins. For sure. For sure. And that is something that women have had to face for too long. For sure. Um do you think then part of the movement – so is part of the – is the move on, movement at a place where it's nuanced enough where it can say the Tom Brokaw story should come to light as well and should be discussed, but that perhaps people would also say within the movement, we're not saying that based on what Tom Brokaw did, his career should be ruined thus f- from this point forward, but just that there should be some – it should be discussed and acknowledged – but that there could be enough gray area that we say, okay, maybe in this case, yeah, maybe the person's two actions that were not cool but were not horrendous in the course of, of a 60-year career are enough to make the person embarrassed publicly and have to be contrite publicly and, and, and own that but then not ruin the career, whereas other there can be grades of it. Is that fair to Look, say? Look, I, I think – you know, when I get asked this a lot about where where is the rehabilitation for the, for all of these men, mm-hmm. and I think that the the lines publicly have been drawn pretty well, and I do believe that both the media and the public has a level of scrutiny that's required. So, for instance, when this uh, uh, Aziz Ansari story mm-hmm. came out, um, there was there was a lot of scrutiny on that story. That well, wait a minute. Maybe this really was just kind of a date gone wrong, sure. right? And people saw it differently. And and I do think that there is a checks and balances in the system. Mm-hmm. But I'm often asked about, well, how do these men, whether it's, you know, a Brett Ratner or, a, you know, a Mark Halpern or a Charlie Rose mm-hmm. or a Glenn Thrush or ma- so many names that maybe not famous names like a Brokaw or a Weinstein – how do, how do they get their lives back? And I, I don't think that that's really for – I don't think that's their accuser's responsibility. Oh, sure. I think it's their responsibility to figure out how they're going to interpret their own actions for the public. They've been called out on behavior. Um, none of their accusers have been disproven. They all have had credible uh, – witnesses and corroboration and other things mm-hmm. that are required for fact checking in in responsible media outlets and i think it's up to them to say to the public this is who i am this is what i believe this is what i've done and this is what i'm going to do going forward mm-hmm. it's up to them to seek their own rehabilitation it's not up to these women to forgive them or absolve them sure and i want to move on from this second because we have so much to cover but and I just really think it's such an important issue. I'm talking about a lot on the podcast, trying to like really tackle it because I think it's something that most men are really afraid to discuss at all. And I think it's something that needs to be discussed. I think that's right. We need to have real conversations about it to really figure it out because I think most men are just like scurrying quietly and not asking questions and then they're just hoping it blows over. And um, my friend Jake Tapper, though, says, says the right thing, which is, if a guy has to wonder if his behavior is okay, it probably isn't. I, I, I don't know if I agree with that statement because I, I still think there is, because of the, 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 the disparity in, in how sexual interactions occur, just the reality of it, it's not as black and white as 
the movement, I think, sometimes says it is, to ask for consent for every sexual act. That's not how romantic encounters happen. Nobody asks permission to kiss somebody. Nobody asks permission to touch somebody. You just have to feel the moment, and occasionally you may read it wrong. And even – let me ask you to even take well, it but, I'm still sorry. with the media. By the but, way, you really should ask permission to touch someone. In the course of your life, when you've been kissed, what percentage of the time has the person said, may I kiss you now? Well, I think – Probably mostly always. I mean, really? I think that's maybe that's or, or they're asking a benefit of being a lesbian. Or, then. I don't know. Or there's a there's a um an an implied question. Like I do think that reading signals badly is possible, but reading no signals is not is not possible. Oh, for sure. And I think you're and right. if you that's- if someone claims that they couldn't read the signals and there was such a, an imbalance yes. in consent, I don't buy it. I agree with that for sure. If somebody is clearly doing a Matt Lauer situation where they are taking somebody who has not shown interest in them and they're just trying to still get what they want, it's horrendous and it's a horrible abuse. But all I'm saying is like where's the difference between that and Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski? Joe Scarborough is technically Mika Brzezinski's boss and they're engaged now. At some point he had to say make a move or ask her out or try to kiss her or something and that one just worked out well. That that was a I thought what that was one of Michelle Wolf's funniest lines at the White House Correspondence Dinner when what was it? when she said that Joe and Mika were kind of me too working out right exactly um, but look I I think you are hitting on the right point though which is when you talk about the workplace when you talk about when these things happen at work there, there's just no question there's a power imbalance and it shouldn't happen so right. there's no there's no real consent opportunity for a for a male superior to come on to a female junior to him. So Joe just took a gamble and he got lucky then. Yeah, maybe so, but you know, I'll let Mika speak for herself as to whether she felt like she was an equal to Joe in that environment, right? right? But if that if that had been a producer on the show or a booker or a researcher, right? And and uh, Joe Instead had done that. Co-host. It would have been a very different situation. Sure. I get it. And I guess – so is the rule going forward then a workplace romance is never allowed anymore because Tom Brokaw was the boss of everybody at NBC News, hundreds and hundreds of employees. And My- that's who he's knowing and getting to know and developing crushes on. You just can't ever cross that, cross that professional boundary? The short answer is you should never cross that – professional boundary unless there is like the most extenuating circumstance of right. you know not you just fall in consent. love with somebody no not just consent but actual you know pursuit and and you know some relationship outside of work that that is relevant but look you're just never going to fix that power imbalance mm-hmm. right i mean that's i guess the core of my question is that because you can't fix it People are still gonna develop workplace crushes forever. That's why most companies have rules in place Against on this dating. issue. Sure, sure. And so, and I guess that's true. I mean, most of these instances, almost all of them, are are of these Me Too situations. These cases are 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 with work power dynamics. There are very few of them saying somebody asked me out on a date and then tried to kiss me. That's different. That's what Times Up is focused on. We are focused solely on workplace because right. that's where we find the most abuse. Um, where there's uh, this kind of power imbalance. 
by the way, since launching the Times Up Legal Defense Fund, I've been um, pained by how many domestic abuse um, calls that we've gotten and um, other kinds of assault uh, claims that we just don't have the funds and and the the um, uh, resources to to pursue everything. Mm-hmm. We we made a decision to focus on on um, workplace, but you know, sexual assault is is a is a major problem for women in this country. Of course. And, uh, we shouldn't exacerbate it by work, by making the workplace equally unsafe. Yeah, there's got to be some, some safe haven for sure. Um, you mentioned Michelle Wolf, big controversy this last week over her jokes. People said that it was inappropriate of her to make jokes about Kellyanne Conway and Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They thought that she was making fun of Sarah Huckabee Sanders' appearance, which, hey, I didn't know it's off limits to make jokes of any kind at a roasty dinner like that. But secondly, as I tweeted, she complimented her appearance. The joke was saying that she lies a lot, but then said uses those lies to make a perfect smoky eye and know your makeup people. A perfect smoky eye is a compliment. That's a compliment. Yeah. We all seek a perfect smoky eye. Exactly. Yeah. So it's insane how twisted every single thing can get. And then people on both sides said, well, they did. She didn't make fun of her appearance. Like, no, she didn't even. So I listened to it twice. Actually, I didn't, I didn't hear the making fun of appearance. Look, I think um, my favorite, uh, you know, analysis of this really is when Michelle Wolf herself said, "You didn't do your research if you invited me to come mm-hmm. and do this." I I think that her dropping the f bomb and talking about pussy bothered people more than anything else. Right. And it's a, Washington is inherently a conservative town, mm-hmm. and they don't like those words. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, you know, but. This dinner used to be, for many years, it was the president would come and make fun of everybody else, and then the comedian would come and make fun of the president and his staff. Mm -hmm. Like, that's always how it was. Since the president opted not to come to the dinner, all of a sudden there's no balance in the program. It's all about, you know, making fun of the administration and the president, and there's nobody on the other side. Sarah should have told jokes. I if. If the president had come or if Sarah Sanders had gotten up and, and done a routine, we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Right. Um, having said that, I do think that Michelle Wolf has been somewhat vindicated this week around um, Sarah Sanders either lying or half-truths, mm-hmm. right? considering the week that the president has had on his truthometer. Can you summarize a little bit of that for us since we're trying to cover the week? Tell me some of the things that have happened this week with him. Well, so much has happened. We are now sitting at the end of a week where it started with um, uh, the special counsel, uh, the Trump team releasing a list of questions that they thought that the special counsel was going to ask President Trump. And the reason that we know that they leaked this list is because they thought it would spark outrage over how broad the special counsel's uh, mission had gone mm-hmm. to investigate the president. But all of a sudden, all those questions were like, oh, yeah, we want to, I want to know the answer to those questions. <laughs> That's good. And then the president's lawyers saying, well, actually, we haven't decided if we're going to sit down with, with Bob Mueller yet. Well, they seem to forget that it's actually not their choice. He could subpoena him. To sit down with the president or not. And Mr. Mueller reminded them of that. Mm-hmm. Then the next day, we saw that the president's lawyer actually resigned. The one who Ty was- Ty Cobb. Ty Cobb, who Another is- Another resignation in the legal team of Trump, which I understand. Who was arguing for working, 
you know, productively with uh, the special counsel. Instead, he brings on Rudy Giuliani. Then he brings on Rudy Giuliani. And Rudy Giuliani, first thing he does and goes out and essentially acknowledges that the president's a liar mm-hmm. by admitting that he did that, pay back the $130,000. Pay off Stormy Daniels. Um, and, you know, it's just, it's comical. It's, it's all in one week. And then Trump's response is, look, Rudy, Rudy, uh, didn't, is his first day right. on the job. He got his, get his facts straight, but he does know this is a witch hunt. Right. I love your Alec Baldwin imitation of Donald no, Trump. No, it's not. This, I will, I will fight to the death on this one. It is not, I have a much more nuanced Donald Trump impression. <laughs> Alec Baldwin won an Emmy for literally a one note impression where his whole impression goes, I'm Donald Trump. This is the voice I do every single sentence for Donald Trump. <laughs> Whereas real life, Donald Trump has got a lot more nuance. All of a sudden, he goes, I don't know. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. Maybe I will. Maybe I won't. He's got a lot more detail, ups and downs. He gets high. He gets kind of feminine. He gets, then he gets real deep. It's a lot more to it. Okay. Thank you. Did I win this point? Yeah, maybe not. Oh, I my don't God. Know. It's very difficult to have such an intelligent person here who sticks by her guns. It's very – Yeah. The, the thing about your Donald Trump, though, yeah. is – is that there's a um, there's more emotion in it than Alex? That's true. Yes, thank yeah. you. And it's yeah. more ups you and feel downs. It. You he feel gets it. the fast and gets. Yeah. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe mm-hmm. I will. Where's that in Alec Baldwin's? Mm-hmm. I don't see it. Yeah, I'm loyal to Alec, though. You know, we went to college together. You did? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. We lived across the hall. So you think that was deserved? I, you know, I think he took him on at a time when a lot of people in the country wouldn't. Oh, for sure. So, and he's a brilliant actor. So for I think sure. the combo. As far as the political relevancy and the importance to the country, the, the impression was wonderful. Yep. I'm just saying from an impressionist standpoint, he's a little lazy with it. If you're friends with him, please tell him he should listen tell to my impression. Yeah. Use, there's more you know, he nuance. Went, he went to Strasbourg. Where did you go? Listen, I went to the Leslie Kahn <laughs> Acting Academy and had a minor in theater at UC San Diego. Mm-hmm. That's something. I'm just saying he's not – I don't think he would argue that he's trying to really reach into his acting depth with that impression. I think he doesn't even love doing it. And he just does this one face and this one voice and this one tone. This is the exact tonality. I think he thought he was going to do it once and then exactly. that wouldn't be it. But just now, now he's sort of called out. Just tell him to yeah. also get this part where he gets, sometimes he gets fast and doesn't know what he's saying. But he has he has achieved something though, which I'm sure you will when you stay at it. <laughs> what he has achieved is he's achieved sort of the um, – Alec Baldwinization of Donald Trump, the same way Tina mm. Fey achieved the Sarah Palinization of of Tina Fey. So that's now how people you, see them. You can't help looking, thinking about Alec when you listen to the president. That's true because people love it boiled down to a simple one note thing, yep. and I get it. You can tell Alec Baldwin that I formerly pro- I appreciate the impression politically, and it bothers me how it's one note. You can tell him that. I will. At the end of this very elaborate week of 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 drama for Trump. Didn't stop 18 GOP lawmakers from nominating him for the Nobel Peace Prize. There are so many things that happened this week that are beyond crazy. So that – that uh, for I his mean, work we'll, we'll, in, we'll actually see if the we'll North see. Korea gets rid of the nuclear um, yes. arsenal. And, and in that case, I think he will win the Nobel Peace Prize crazily. I think he might. Yeah, if How he denuclearizes – my okay. dream scenario – I've said this before – is that Trump – Denuclearizes North Korea, wins the Nobel Prize for, it, and then is impeached. It would be the most unique in history yeah. one-two punch. And my view actually is that I'm just praying one day he says, "You know what? America's great again. I'll see you later." Yes, and he leaves. Exactly. Like, okay, fine. 
Thank yeah. you very much for I making us it. great. I'm done. I did it. Out of here. We're, we're, we're great plus. Yeah. We're greater than ever before. Greater than ever before. Drops the mic and he's out. Out. Obama ironically oh. dropped the mic. Trump should literally drop the mic. Yep. He holds mics too much. Uh, you notice when he goes to the podium, he always adjusts the mic. It's like a very mm-hmm. insecure move. Always moves the mic. Yeah. They've said it properly. It's either Mr. insecure President. or bad staff work, something. <laughs> Very possible. So, um, there is that. And this last week, also, Kim Jong un crossed the border, the demilitarized zone into South Korea. First time North Korean leaders done that and held hands a bunch, walked around Trump and Melania, won't hold hands, but President Moon and President Un were holding hands, walking around like best friends, planted a tree, had a romantic stroll in the woods. Lots of attention on it all. And at the same time, the Department of Health and Human Services um, uh, issued new rules for Title X, which essentially are taking birth control access away from poor women mm-hmm. and are threatening to pass a gag rule to prevent doctors from giving women their full, repro- their full health care choices if they serve in a Planned Parenthood or women's health care clinic. Like the things that are happening below the surface <laughs> – of crazy town here are just frightening. What the EPA is doing to uh, environmental regs and what the Department of Housing and Urban Development are doing to public housing and sucking away resources while we are spinning out over Stormy Daniels. That's the thing that makes me crazy. Yeah, how can it ever stop? Also this week, Trump signed a new religious liberty order that's going to make it easier for religious organizations to claim it's against their religious beliefs to then – provide services to LGBT members. It's often used as a discriminatory law. And and, and let's think about how that affects people in, in real life situations. So for instance, the Department of Education, there's a, a, a debate brewing internally at the Department of Education, which had gone a long way to create rules, uh, federal rules to help schools with their anti-bullying programs which is a, a serious problem in particularly middle schools. And and um, the Obama administration created rules at the Department of Education that tie to federal funding because that's really what a federal government can do. They, mm-hmm. they condition federal support on following certain rules. Now the Department of Education um, being taken over by the right wing has – and and using these religious liberty exemptions are saying you don't have to protect LGBTQ kids in school if it is against your religious belief that they have any rights at all. We're talking about kids. Mm-hmm. So they're using these r- new rules, these new freedoms being given to them to essentially wipe away protections for kids. That would only be for, for – a- Religious schools, though, right? It would, no, all schools, because what they're saying is – But it has is, to be a religious organization that is no, in charge. In in public schools, they have the ability to have religious objections now mm. in a way that they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. The, the Justice Department, in terms of enforcing hate crimes, I mean the same thing. So people are worried that they're going to use these this newfound religious liberty freedoms to essentially undermine protections across the board. And as you and I were talking off air, that's what Trump's like best genius move is to be able to advance his more subversive agendas under the radar agenda just to always soak up the air. He doesn't – it seems he doesn't mind just having it talk about porn star payments and talking about you know, smoky eyes and all these things and it just it makes it una- – makes us unable to 
track all of these much more serious things that are rolling back progress. I think my own view is that Donald Trump does not care one way or another about mm-hmm. anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, that he actually but himself, but himself, and and the perception of him. But what has happened is that the distraction that he creates with his narcissism mm-hmm. has allowed a very smart and very pervasive group of right-wing operatives to come in and take over the government and do things they've been longing to do for years that they couldn't even do in Republican administrations before. And so that's what they – That's so that's So I don't the, think it's Donald Trump mm, out there saying, oh, right. we're going to sneakily undermine all these oh, other right, things yeah. while I distract the people with my Rudy Giuliani pronouncements. Mm. I think he just doesn't care about governing. He doesn't care right. about – other He's the people. ultimate narcissist. He loves the attention. And but that, there are smart enough people right. around him like Scott Pruitt and his cronies at EPA and um, Betsy DeVos and her cronies at the, at the um, uh, Department of Education and Jeff Sessions and his cronies at the Department of Justice who know how to use the fact that the country is distracted to get their agendas through in a way that they hadn't been able to for years. And you think that's also why the Republicans in Congress realize that even though they hate Trump, they are going to allow him to do his thing and nominate him for Nobel Peace Prizes because it's the perfect cover. Absolutely. They, they, they didn't realize that at first, I think, when he was running, and they're like, oh, actually, this is the best. It gives them a lot of cover. It gives them things to go to their base and but say, if, look what we've delivered for but you. But if Trump doesn't care, why would he – he is still the one who nominated to each of these positions the people who are anti the group. I mean, Betsy DeVos was a, is completely anti public education and she runs the Department of Education. Uh, oh, Scott I think Pruitt those are his general bents. Sued the EPA yeah, yeah. and now runs it. I think those are his general bents. Right. But I don't think he cares much about policy one way or another. I think as long as these people do their job and pledge fealty to him mm-hmm. and keep their politics on his side, that's all he cares about. Okay, here's the deal. You could do whatever you want. We're still going to have those meetings and you go around the table and say how great I am. I'm really great. Mm. That was good. Thank you. A little better. Am I working on it? That was good. Thank you. Um, So all of that bit of good news this week is that Bill Cosby finally guilty. Yeah. Finally found guilty, facing 30 years in prison. And as I also tweeted this week, you obviously, aside from the fact that he's obviously very guilty, you know he's guilty in his own actions in court when he's accused by woman after woman of drugging them and raping them and he doesn't stand up and shout this is not true it's lies but then the prosecutor says he has a private jet and he's a flight risk this is a lie you asshole it's not true <laughs> that's what it was offensive to him yeah. I don't have a jet right well he says no jet i guess because he doesn't want you know he's going he's under um pressure for civil litigation right he doesn't want anyone to think he has a lot of money all right but the um look the interesting thing to me about cosby Aside from the fact that for many, many years, women, particularly women of color, have been complaining and getting nowhere, um, which I think says a lot about how seriously we've taken complaints around women of color. That's, I think, part of the R. Kelly problem, mm-hmm. um, is that Cosby's strategy for the second trial – remember, he had one trial that ended in a mistrial and mm-hmm. they decided to bring him up charges again – is that his strategy the second time was to try and destroy the credibility of his accusers, to go after the women, and that spectacularly failed. Mm -hmm. That says – that's heartening. That says something good about judges and and going forward. Unfortunately, however, we found out this week another topic that slavery was a choice according to Mr. Kanye West. Yeah. Big rant on TMZ's back on Twitter to the detriment of the conversation of the planet. 
Um, he's lost his mind again, and he's soaking up even more of the limited airtime that we've got. Are you a Kanye fan? You know, it's interesting. What's so frustrating to me is that in the last two weeks, probably 99% of African Americans know what Kanye said about the president and that Starbucks uh, threw out to African American men mm-hmm. from their store. Mm-hmm. But 1% potentially or 2% of African Americans, just like the rest of the country, know what this administration is doing on birth control or for mm. poor women or what's happening to our environmental regs or to our inner city public housing subsidies. Like this kind of Twitterization of, you know, our information is just kind of overwhelming. But isn't that a little bit of a problem of, 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 of the coarseness of, of, of hip hop? Because that's like a big Donald Trump sucking the air out of the conversation. It kind of just, even though I'm a huge fan of rap and hip hop, but it kind of dumbs down the conversation and the focus and it makes it about these like very flashy, yeah, poppy, I'm not shallow gonna, things. I'm not going to lay Kanye's stupidity on all hip hoppers. I, like I, I don't, but I, he's seen as the genius. He's seen as the, the, the rap God of the group. Yeah. He, you know, hasn't had a hit record in a couple of years. That is true. He's His a music genius is, sneaker maker, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. He make he cuts off sleeves on sweatshirts and it's revolutionary in the sweatshirt industry. You know, worth a thousand dollars a pop. Big I time. think, um, what, I did think was really exciting about the Kanye thing was this ended up being a conversation within the black community, much more so than it was a conversation elsewhere. So he was being held to account by his own community in in much more powerful ways, right? And so, like that's a that that was I thought extremely um, uh, comforting. I love that. That's true. And also on that exact note, by the way, Snoop Dogg has now agreed to perform at the Pedal on the Pier event that I'm hosting for the fifth or sixth year in a row for the Harold Robinson Foundation on June 3rd at the Santa Monica Pier, raising hopefully beyond a million dollars this year to send inner city kids from Watts to camp for the first time in their lives. Snoop will be performing. He will be DJing a little bit as well. Um, so please come out to that event. I think Craig Robinson also will be doing it, not confirmed, but probably confirmed. I Just go to my Twitter and you will see the link to tweet and donate to help send these kids to camp or come out to the event. You're, in person yourself and do it. It's going to be great. June 3rd in the morning, Santa Monica Pier. Please do check that out. Um, and you mentioned Starbucks. Um, at least one another positive thing with that story is those two men arrested just settled this week for a symbolic $1 each um, with a promise from officials in Philadelphia that they would establish a $200,000 program for young entrepreneurs in, in the city. What a cool outcome to that story. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I, Starbucks is my client, so in full disclosure. Sure. Um, I, and I was, um, I, I just admire them as a company. I admire the leadership. I admire how seriously they took what happened, how personally they took what happened. I do think yeah. that it was a model of how to not just manage your brand, that, that's too trite and too Madison Avenue, but it was a model of how companies really can show their heart. When things go wrong, not yeah. just when things go right. I said that last week because of all the – so often in these cases, the company will just ignore it, ignore it, ignore it for a very long time until they're forced with public outcry. And very quickly, the CEO of Starbucks did a bunch of things, apologized, met with the two men, closed all stores for an afternoon for racial bias training. Afternoon maybe is too short to learn racial sensitivity, but it's better than nothing. And uh, 
took a lot of steps very quickly, I think is, was, was pretty cool. And it's not also not, it wasn't like some systemic problem was uncovered. It was one incident at one store. I don't think anybody's thinking that it was a mandate from the company. Well, and you know, look, this, you know, when you have, you know, thousands and thousands of retail stores across the country run by, um, um, individuals, things will happen. Um, and, and, the key issue is how you address it and how you deal with it and how you try and make people feel a bigger part of a whole in their community. And I think that what Starbucks has done on the conversation on race for a long time, not just this instance, you know, is a good model for companies and I think should make other CEOs and other leaders feel like corporate America has a pretty important role to play here in, in the strife and that is, um, you know, in our, um, uh, in our society t- today around race. A good role model for sure. Although since they are a client of yours, could you please tell them to stop this war on Christmas? Why are they doing it? <laughs> Why do they hate Christmas? It's terrible. These, you know, the celebration of the red and green cups. It's yeah. just terrible. How dare they? Yeah. How I think they? the funniest bit on, I can't remember if it was Colbert or Sarah Silverman's show or, or both that did bits on it, but they said while being criticized for a war on Christmas for not having Christmas on their cups, Literally to the left and right of the cups, there was the Christmas blend coffee. There was yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. the Christmas CD mix that was available. Yeah. But it has to also be I'm on the cups. I'm all about the peppermint latte. Ooh. Yeah. It is very Christmassy. Why not yeah. make it year-round? It's a, people like peppermint all year-round. People like eggnog flavor year-round. What, what's that discrimination against? Yeah, you can't imagine the science that goes into the seasons of the special lattes. I, there's a lot of science on it. But why, yeah. why does your client Starbucks hate elves so much? <laughs> Why have they been Elvis for a very long time? I'd love to know that. Howard Schultz should literally be in a Santa suit. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. That would fix it. Absolutely. You just come out there and say, ho, ho, ho. Then people are going to say he's being sexist. So there's a lot of issues. There's a lot of <laughs> if problems. If you were a hip hopper, he could say, ho, ho, ho. Yes, this is true. <laughs> so one last question for you before I do a, a very brief three-minute thunder round with you. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do you think the state of our vote is in the country now since you started Rock the Vote, one of the founders of it? And just this week, um, it came out that Steve Bannon, who who um, was the architect behind the data firm Cambridge Analytica, which closed its doors this week after being an insane organization that ruined our democracy. Um, it came out that he used Cambridge Analytica to discourage the vote from certain demographics in the country and to have them also strangely focus on Putin and figure out people's feelings about Putin, which is still unexplained. But we've had so many attacks, not just through Cambridge Analytica, but throughout the last many years trying to repress the vote, had rollbacks of laws and redistricting of all these things, um, trying to restrict people's vote. Where is the state of our vote right now and how do we know that it's safe? Well, I don't think we know it's safe. I think what we, where we've been left is that, um, you know, 13 intelligence agencies in this country actually came up with evidence that people were trying to affect our vote. Um, and I don't think there's been enough attention on making sure it's safe before the next election. We have to, we have to shift that focus. We don't have a lot of time left. The election's in November. Stakes are high. It is. What is your Twitter handle? Hillary, Hillary R. At Hillary R with one L. One L. Hillary R. Please follow. Tweet. Please follow. And, uh, tweet, tweet at me. With us. Yeah. Tell me what you think. Yes, please do that. Um, so I know you have to leave in a minute. So very briefly, if we may, it is time for the Thunder Round. Okay. The key issue here, uh, Jessica Simpson's vacation selfies are inspiring people not only with bikini wear, but giving them inspo for their summer sunglasses. Thoughts? Haven't seen them. 
Oh, but like, do you look at her as a role model both for fashion and just how to live your life? No. Why not? She's a, she looks great. Yeah, I'm sure she does. Okay. Okay. So you're not a fan. I get it. Meghan Markle, though, is very close to deciding on a dress or something for the wedding. That I'm going to look forward to seeing. You are? Yeah. What do you, what do you think? Is she going to go classic? I'm kind of a royalist on this. Front. You are? Yeah, a little bit. You're not against the old... I don't mind. ...hierarchical, separatist system of the royalty. It might bother me if I lived there but more, from, from a, but from afar... Let them have it's it. It's a fun souvenir. It is kind of fun to have a little vestige of an old old world. Yeah. You get to see kings and queens, and these, especially because they don't have power. Yep. So it is nice that they just get to do this pomp and circumstance, and then a parliament actually runs the government. Yeah. And anyone who thinks that we don't have a whole lot of people in this country with money who doesn't deserve it is crazy. That's <laughs> true. We do have our own royalty <laughs> yeah. for sure that we prop up just as much. Yeah. They just don't get crowns unless it's their birthday, and then they get the cute tiara. It's usually plastic. Mm-hmm. Um where T-Rex is actually smart, the Daily Beast asked. Apparently, a, a news came out this week that the greatest predator that ever walked this earth, we knew they were, an, they were an efficient killing machine with eyes the size of grapefruits and teeth the size of railway spikes. But we always thought they were dumb. Apparently, now it comes out due to a new book, The Rise and Fall of Dinosaurs, A New History of a Lost World. University of Edinburgh paleontologist Steve Brousset suggests they were actually much more than a giant brute. They were likely as smart as humans' closest genetic cousins, the chimpanzees. I found that disappointing because, mm-hmm. you know, Donald Trump with his small hands and his vicious, you know, ness <laughs> kind of always reminded me of a T-Rex. So now the idea that I have to think of T-Rex as a super smart. Oh, wow. Re- re- I have to reevaluate the whole analogy. I love the way you tie that in. That is very interesting. Donald Trump is the T-Rex of leaders, of people. He was, right. But is he – Brilliant? But he's kind of brilliant. I mean, we said the way that he yeah. man- manipulates He's the brilliant media. at Twitter. Let's just say brilliant that. Brilliant at Twitter. All caps. It makes it easy. You don't have to worry yep. about punctuation. You don't have yep. to worry about capitalization. He is good with that. Wow. Interesting. So maybe we need to re- – maybe the good lesson there is just don't underestimate your enemies. Yep. They might be smarter than you realize. They might seem big and loud. That doesn't mean they don't have that nuance behind them. And pray for extinction. <laughs> That's right. Mm-hmm. And also tell Alec Baldwin to work on the nuance. Yeah. You see the point. I can't thank you enough for being here. Thank you for having me, Ben. Great to see you. Such a wonderful conversation. Uh, until last week, next week, this has been Last Week on Earth. Last week on Earth. Last week on Earth. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio. Sir, only at Smodcast.com.